You're listening to Find Your Voice, a podcast made in collaboration with the independent federal member for Goldstein, Zoe Daniel. We acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the traditional land of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. and welcome to this latest episode of Find Your Voice. I'm Zoe Daniel and it is great to be with you today for the latest episode of our podcast. Now there is a big issue that's going to dominate the rest of the parliamentary year and that is the National Anti-Corruption Commission bill and legislation which has been a long time coming. Uh, We finally have our hands on it. It runs to a couple of hundred pages as well as a several hundred page explanatory memorandum. And it's currently with a a committee inquiry, which is taking a deeper look at the bill. It seemed to me that it was timely to have a chat with an expert about this. So I'm joined by Stephen Charles from the Centre for Public Integrity. Stephen's also a retired judge and he joins us from his house in Melbourne. Hi, Stephen. Hi. Now, this bill, as I said, it's quite comprehensive, um, particularly in the context of many of the bills that come across my desk in my my current world. I presume you've now had a good chance to go through it in detail. Let's just start with sort of some general comments. On the face of it, do you think this is a reasonably good framing of the Commission? Yes. Yes, I do. Um, I think it's, um, a, um, as you put it, a reasonably good framework for the <clears throat> for the Commission. Um, it, there, there are um, some points on which the, the centre has concerns, but it's really um, uh, a, a great advance for integrity in the federal sphere. Um, it's terrific that they've succeeded in putting it together in less than five months after the election. And um, um, Dr. Helen Haynes is, I think, entitled to um, a very substantial part of the tributes being paid because um, she really um, moved ahead of everybody else in getting her own bill uh, ready for Parliament and which the coalition um, stopped being discussed. Now, um, the, um, the, the framework is good. And um, I would say that even although there are flaws, uh, I would hope that the the bill, even if, if we couldn't obtain any amendments, um, should be passed um, into legislation before Christmas um, with the hope that, um, that these matters about which there is complaint could be cleaned up afterwards. Mm. Interesting that you say that because, you know, obviously as someone who's going to be sitting in the House voting on this bill, there there is a, a portion of the community that says don't vote it through until it's been strengthened in those particular controversial areas. So let's go through those. The, the first one, I think the sort of headline issue is the public versus private hearings point and the uh, parameters uh, that are around that in terms of where the threshold is for the commissioner to call public hearings. What, what's your thinking on that point? Right. The, um, uh, the, the original form, <clears throat> as we understood Labor's proposal, was to have a, uh, a right to hold public hearings when the commissioner took the view that it was in the public interest to do so. 
Now, what um, has appeared um, really in the very last minutes um, is a, a, an amendment which is quite considerable, which is that um, you cannot have a public hearing unless um, there are exceptional circumstances um, established. And the difficulty with that is the ambiguous nature of uh, what are exceptional circumstances. Um, the only state um, which has a provision of that kind is Victoria. The result of the inclusion of it is that there will be substantially fewer public hearings um, federally than would have been the case without that um, intruding provision. Mm. And, um, we've spoken to a number of commissioners of various state bodies, and all the ones we've spoken to have um, argued that the provision's unnecessary and is an impediment to um, the ability to um, hold public hearings. Yes, and the Attorney-General has been asked about this quite a bit, uh, particularly on the issue that this could sort of lead to a years-long lawyer's picnic as the courts try to figure out the definition of exceptional circumstances. Do you think that is a risk? Um, I think there is a risk that um, there will certainly in the uh, early stages um, be attempts by people for whom a public hearing is proposed and who don't want to have that happen, that they will go to the court to argue, this is the federal court, and they will go to the court to argue that um, there are no exceptional circumstances, so the public hearing should not occur. Mm. Looking at the text of the bill, so as you said, this is... Uh, Subdivision B, private and public hearings, if anyone um, could be bothered having a look at it, it's on page 68. So it speaks to the fact that the commissioner may decide to hold a hearing or part of a hearing in public if the commissioner is satisfied that exceptional circumstances justify holding the hearing and it's in the public interest to do so, as you said. Now, there's also a further section which goes to the considerations that the commissioner must use when making that decision. So the extent to which the issue could involve corrupt conduct that's serious or systemic, whether evidence is of a confidential nature, potential unfair prejudice to a person's reputation, which is plainly the core of the issue, uh, whether a person has a particular vulnerability and the benefits of exposing corrupt conduct to the public. Now, given that that Section 3 is there, my question is, why do you need exceptional circumstances in Section 2? Because the Commission is already going to have to be considering public interest under the auspices of those other provisions. So it seems like a further check that's um, not required. I, I agree entirely. The um, Commissioner under subsection 3 of section 73 in any event as you say was going to have to consider unfair prejudice to a person's reputation now this is one of the particular points that the attorney general argued as a reason for including this limiting provision that there might be damage to people's reputations but um, given that the commissioner has to have considered um, unfair prejudice to a person's reputation, 
or should have considered that before arriving at the view that there should be a public hearing, then um, it really, as you say, is quite unnecessary. If mm. anything, it's, it's in conflict with that. So that you, you get the commissioner saying that um, uh, I come to the conclusion that um, it's in the public interest that you have a, a public hearing. And in, in for that purpose, I've considered unfair prejudice to a person's reputation. But then, because of the possibility of um, uh, um, damage to reputation, um, we can't hold the, the hearing because there, there don't appear to be any exceptional circumstances. It's mm. very ungainly and back to front. Now, um, one of the matters that um, could be used as an alternative is if you, in the wording of subsection 3, which says the commissioner may have regard to the following um, uh, five matters, A to E, if you replace that with must have regard, mm. there could be no question um, but that the commissioner was obliged to have thought about each of these things um, before a decision was being made to hold a public hearing. And it may be that doing making that amendment um, would satisfy some of the people who are so concerned about the damage to reputations. Yes, it, it's fascinating uh, as I get down into the weeds of legislation in this new role, how much of a difference the change of one word can make. Uh, you come at it from the perspective of being a former judge. In that job, would you literally sit there and analyse the individual words on the basis that you've just suggested in order to figure the intent of the law that you're having to apply? The, um, the commissioner um, having um, an obligation, not merely a right to think about these matters or uh, an obligation um, <clears throat> to, to have regard uh, as he wished at his discretion, mm. Um, in that situation would be obliged to um, have, a, have taken that matter positively into account. And if anyone um, complained and wanted to stop a hearing in these circumstances, the commissioner would have to provide evidence of um, what matters he took into account in deciding that there would, there would not be unfair prejudice to a person's reputation, privacy, safety or well-being. Mm. So that, yeah. Yeah. So let's look at it from a, another point of view. Let's say it was left as, as it is, which gives the, the commissioner um, perhaps more of an imprimatur to hold most hearings in private. How does that fundamentally affect the investigative process, if at all? Although on the face of it, the public might want to see public hearings, if most of the hearings were private, is that likely to materially affect the outcome of investigations? Well, the, the, um, when, when you look at the, um, the ICAC in Sydney, most of that body's hearings are in private. Over 75% of their hearings take place in, in, in private. And what um, the, the impact on 
the actual investigation, um, it would be first that um, um, the public would probably for the first time become aware that this investigation was taking place. When a public hearing occurs, people who um, first for, for the first time learn about the investigation may say, oh, well, I knew all about that event. Um, I, I, I can give further evidence on that. Mm. So it, it, it brings people um, able to give evidence out into the open to offer that evidence, um, and it aids the investigation in that way. Mm. There are all sorts of ways that um, a, a public hearing um, uh, aids the process of um, uh, advancing integrity. It makes people aware of what is being investigated, the allegation that uh, a particular set of circumstances um, may be corrupt, it may be improper, um, that um, it's the sort of behaviour that um, they should think twice about before going ahead with. Um, it makes them um, it makes them know that the integrity body um, is conducting investigations properly um, and um, doing so uh, with natural justice so that people can see um, how the investigation is taking place. Um, it, um, but then, above all, uh, a public hearing and the possibility of it is a very serious deterrent to people who might otherwise engage in conduct of that kind. Mm. I want to turn to the issue of third parties. Now, this is something that's been raised uh, in terms of the definition of the people who can be drawn into these kinds of investigations. Yes. So, again, for those who are following along with the document in front of them, if you go uh, right back to part one, um, page three, with into the simplified outline of the Act, the definition of corrupt conduct, which is defined in Section 8, can only be conduct by a public official or conduct that adversely affects or that could adversely affect the honest or impartial exercise or performance of a, a public official's powers, functions or duties. And then there's a more detailed outline of the meaning of corrupt conduct on page 14. Now, the scenario that's been raised with me is, for example, if there were was a person or persons who were seeking to influence a public official um, corruptly, but the public official wasn't aware that they were attempting to influence influence them corruptly. Therefore, the effective performance of their duties uh, was affected in some way. That would not be covered within these parameters. Is that a problem? Well, um, look, look at it this way. When the... Um the Commonwealth um, government is is buying um, um, whether it's um, weapons for our defence, um, whether it's buying um, food of one kind or another, or selling um, our coal or oil or or wheat. When it's engaged in these transactions, it's usually dealing with outside parties. You have the public servants on the inside, and 
the the outside world, which is um, free free or um, civilians who are not in government. Now, what um, this means is that um, although there is in each of these cases a possibility that the outsiders uh, are not honest, um, are misrepresenting um, the, uh, the, the nature or qualities of whatever it is they're hoping to sell to the Commonwealth or the things that they think they are able to do for the Commonwealth, if they are misrepresenting um, honestly or fraudulently um, what it is that they are offering the Commonwealth, they, um, on the basis of this um, set of provisions in Section 8, will not be able to be investigated. And it's quite deliberate. Um, and by that, I don't mean to um, um, make a, an unfair attack on the Commonwealth. The decision they've made is that this is a body which is going to have a huge jurisdiction and it's better to look only at the public servants and see if they're behaving badly or not. Um, the trouble with that is that there are going to be many situations that the, um, the NAC might be interested to investigate, but they will be stopped because they can only look to see if public servants are behaving badly and not whether the outsiders who are offering the Commonwealth a defective um, product or um, alle alleging that they've got the ability to perform in a certain way when they cannot. Now, in other words, the, this body is only going to be able to look at half the picture. Mm. And um, our view is that that really is um, uh, something which is, is really quite inadequate. It means that um, the, there are going to be a lot of disputes which the... Um, the, the, the NAC will not be able to look at because the, the, the impropriety is on the outside in circumstances where it would be much better if it were able to look at the whole of the question and see um, whether anyone was at fault there. Because time and again, the Commonwealth may be losing huge amounts of money because of something which has gone wrong in a transaction and in which they may not be able to investigate it. It is said that in cases of, uh, of fraud or matters of that kind, that uh, never mind, the police will be able to look at that. Well, the answer to that is that the police will not have, do not have the powers of a Royal Commission, which the NAC will have, which makes it a much better investigatory body than the police would be in these circumstances. And mm. th so um, what we say is that rather than simply cut off um, a large proportion of the work, which the NAC might otherwise be able to investigate, leave it to the commissioner to decide whether he or she thinks it's something which should be investigated. And so looking at that section of the bill, what would you add to that section to give effect to what you're talking about? Well, we've, um, we've suggested... Um, in the um, <coughs> um, matters that uh, we've put forward in our submissions, that um, <coughs> the, the body should be able to investigate any conduct of any person that has the potential to impair the efficacy or probity of an, of an exercise of an official function or public administration 
by a public official. Now, that would uh, mean that you'd be able to look at um, the, um, the efficacy of what the, uh, the public official was doing, and if it was being interfered with by an outsider, you could still look at it. Alternatively, mm. we do su um, suggest another because um, corrupt conduct could, um, could include cartel behavior, um, collusive behavior um, by outsiders, as happened in the Bailong Valley mi coal mining licenses, where um, it was people outside um, who were um, trying to um, mislead um, the, the, uh, the, the, the officials um, who were handing out the coal mining licenses. Now, and, and that um, in relation to ICAC was something which, um, when the, the Kanin decision was arrived at, um, the New South Wales government immediately felt that they had to amend the legislation to enable that sort of investigation to take place. When the Kanin decision was arrived at by the High Court, and this is another of the points that uh, needs to be made, the effect of it was to cut out 30% um, of the work that ICAC had previously been carrying out hmm. over the previous but, 20 years. Stephen, I want to take you to um, the issues of uh, protection of whistleblowers or informants and also journalists. So there are several pieces of the bill that are relevant to this. The most obvious is, is on page 39, which talks, talks about protection of journalists. Uh, but there's also the sections around warrants, um, which, again, for those who are following on, is around page 107. Do you have any uh, concerns or are there, are there any red flags in either of those sections? Well, yes. Um, I think in the first place that the, the basic provision in Section 31 um, is good. It um, protects journalists. But the, the effect of the search warrants provision may be to enable um, people, um, those who want to um, find out the sources of a journalist, to go behind um, by getting a search warrant um, which enables them to search the information the journalist has. Um, and uh, I think that that certainly um, does um, does re require amendment um, in the um, <coughs> um, uh, legislation. Part of it um, is a concern on our part that uh, the that those who can give these search warrants in general terms um, are magistrates and justices of the peace. Hmm. We think that uh, anyone who wanted to um, get a search warrant in relation to circumstances involving a journalist should have to go at least to a judge um, before, getting, before getting such a search warrant. Yes. So would that be the federal court, for example? Is that the kind of level that we're talking about? Yes, it is. Hmm. And it's not something I would hope which would um, be um, something uh, happening terribly often, um, trying to get a, <coughs> a journalist's sources. Um, you know, may, may happen occasionally, but it's not something I would hope that would put uh, an enormous um, 
um, load onto the federal court, having to be the people responsible in that very, very important situation for deciding whether and on what terms the warrant should be given. Yep. Now, whistleblower protection has been something that this government has wanted to treat somewhat separately through changes to the Public Interest Disclosure Act. Um, And there's been much talk about a whistleblower commissioner, for example, which is something that Helen Haynes had put up. But for now, we have this bill with those changes to the other act ahead. Are you satisfied with that? approach uh, and are you convinced that separating them in in that way will bring about effective protection for whistleblowers? I I, I don't complain about that. I think that um, uh, while it might have been (coughs) excellent to get them all in one piece of legislation, I think the the government and the Attorney General had a huge job to do to get uh, this piece of legislation as far as it has. Now, um, uh, without bringing in all the areas of whistleblowing protection, um, which are substantial, um, before that they could get it done, um, that they have promised that they will, um, with a um, one with you know, a singular um, piece of legislation, cover whistleblowers and do it properly, and that they will have it done. I think by the middle of next year. So while uh, I can see a lot to be said for having it all in one piece of legislation, whistleblowers um, are relevant to a number of other types of of activity. Mm. And, um, for example, it would have been so much better if um, uh, poor old Bernard Collieri and Witness K had been given proper protection um, for the very important work they did in... um, uh, blowing the whistle on some appalling behaviour um, by, by the federal government, um, that would not have been part of the um, the sort of material, I think, that would be um, involved in this Act. Just before we close this off, I just wanted to go to what I'm sort of loosely referring to as clearance mechanisms. This is something that I had discussed with the Attorney General over time around the formation of this bill in order to, you know, mitigate some of those concerns about reputational damage. It it seems to me that it's quite good in that in the reporting on investigations, the Commissioner is given the power or direction to include a statement to say um, that a particular person is not the subject of any findings or opinions in relation to the investigation. Uh, Perhaps the person was simply giving evidence at a hearing. That doesn't mean that they they should be tainted with the guilt of that. And I, I recall saying to the Attorney General that it should be articulated clearly within the legislation in order that the commissioner didn't feel unable to comment on the fact that someone was merely being drawn in to add value to an investigation rather than being a substantive part of it. So do you think having that kind of language in the bill does help to mitigate some of those concerns that have been raised about reputational damage? Very much so, yes. Uh, I think this, this legislation goes further than any other legislation of this kind I know to uh, make sure as far as possible that people whose reputations 
shouldn't be damaged are not affected by the fact that this um, but, but the hearing's been taking place in public, um, that it's made plain that they are not the subject of any investigation, that nothing has been found to their detriment. I think that's very important. Now, we've, I think, analysed or discussed the main sticking points in the bill. Is there anything else outstanding that we haven't touched on that is of concern? That there are um, other matters. Um, the one of the the, the facts uh, which um, I suppose um, that this government would regard as very important to them is that there is an oversight committee and that they control it because mm. under the legislation at present um, the chair of a, an otherwise equally divided committee must be a member of a government party mm. so that means that in matters like appointing the commissioner and in making decisions about the funding of the NAC, they are, will, would be able to control it. Mm. Uh, um, while um, you can um, see that they won't be enthusiastic in any sense about giving up that control, um, in many areas, funding is controlled by an independent tribunal. And the funding of the NAC could be um, made subject to a body of that kind um, in which the government did not have control. The, the government has announced funding uh, for the NAC of $272 million over four years. And that's a great deal better than the amounts previously mentioned by the coalition for the body they had proposed. But we have always assumed, having regard to the cost of the other various integrity bodies around Australia, that the, the NAC, having a much larger area to investigate, um, would probably require more than $100 million a year to be mm. set up and to operate properly. And on the government's suggested figure, that would run out during the third year um, of a four-year term. Now, um, that's simply one example. The, the appointment of the commissioner is a, um, uh, is a difficult one. The, um, the, the problem with that um, is it, it, it could be done in another way. Um, it could be done by um, uh, allowing the government, um, uh, in, a, in effect, a first, um, um, first say proposal against a right of veto um, or um, putting forward the suggestion that in those circumstances the commissioner should only be um, someone who is acceptable to both sides of parliament. Mm. Uh, that is a problem, but I think it is capable um, of, of being overcome. One question is that um, the um, one of the two deputy commissioners is not required to have legal qualifications. And uh, while we think that's, that's um, a good idea, the deputy commissioner can be the person who controls a public hearing. And um, uh, I would be concerned that while it's a good idea to have uh, a non-legal deputy commissioner, I doubt whether it would be a good idea to have a deputy commissioner who had no legal training 
to conduct a public hearing because of the very difficult problems of managing such hearings and ensuring that um, natural justice was being done to all parties. Mm. Um, uh, for that, I think um, I must say my, my view is that it would be desirable that one, one of the uh, commissioner or, de, or the other deputy commissioner who had legal qualifications would be the best person to hear um, pub, or to chair public hearings. Mm. So with all everything that we've discussed, uh, Stephen, just to round this out, getting back to your initial comments, your view is pass the bill and then if there are issues over time, then we amend the bill. Is that your view? Um, I, um, I think it will be very difficult to get the, um, the bill through um, and if um, uh, a stand is taken about exceptional circumstances and people say, well, unless we get that, we are not going to pass it. Mm. On the other hand, um, once you get legislation like this in place, it is very difficult to amend it. Yes. And the uh, Victorian um, legislation, it's section 117, that contains the provision for exceptional circumstances. And um, people have been complaining about that. Commissioners have been saying that it, it is uh, a very serious barrier for us to be able to hold a public hearing in Victoria for a variety of reasons and people going to the High Court and things of this kind and um, stressing the essential nature of public hearings for the work of an integrity body of this kind. But that hasn't done any good. And I suppose you would say, well, it's not surprising that um, a parliament full of politicians who don't like the idea of public hearings wouldn't be enthusiastic about amending it. <laughs> it may very well be that um, a, uh, a, a very difficult decision has to be made as to whether you would accept um, a, um, a knack um, hampered um, by um, exceptional circumstances, preventing it holding as many public hearings as it should, or fighting tooth and nail um, to uh, um, prevent uh, that model passing. If it is being supported by both the, um, um, the government and the opposition, then um, it, would, it may be impossible to stop it going through in any event. Um, on the other hand, if, as I saw Peter Harcher say on Insiders, the government wants a body in place that will be permanent, not one which the, the next government of a different complexion decides they don't like and want to toss out, that would mean that um, you go from, from an act under the present government and losing it under the next. In other words, um, wanting something with consensus and then possibly situations emerge where the public can be sufficiently persuaded that we really don't need the exceptional circumstances provision and put enough pressure on both sides of parliament to remove it. Yes, it's going to be a very interesting few weeks. Yes. Stephen, thanks so much for your time today. A pleasure. Stephen Charles is the retired judge and from the Centre for Public Integrity, and we've been talking about the 
NAC bill, which is occupying pretty much most of my time right now. And you've been listening to Find Your Voice. about Zoe and her work in the Australian Parliament at zoedaniel.com.au and if you enjoyed this episode leave a review we'd love to hear from you this podcast is authorized by Zoe Daniel 677 Nepean Highway Brighton East Victoria 